our reading now, which is Acts 17, verses 1 to 15, and that's page 1113 in your church Bibles. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasons with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, and as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Um, I guess um, September... Um, always feels like, um, well, just the, to me at least, the, the real start of the year as opposed to January. It has that sense of new things or old things restarting, new things starting, and certainly it feels like that particularly this year. Uh, full of lots of questions. People like, what will this next year look like? Uh, for us it's, as a church, it's a slightly um, odd time, in some ways odd, uh, because it's 10 years now. Um, I've, I've had a few photos messaged to me over the last month of different things that uh, were happening at this time um, 10 years ago. Uh, 10 years of this church meeting um, in this school. And so while it's another September, it's the start of a new year and we're sort of perhaps naturally looking forward, it does also give us the opportunity to reflect a little, um, to look back over 10 years and see what God has been up to in our lives, how he's kept us, uh, and how he's grown us as individuals um, and as a church. Uh, Hopefully you've received Laura's email asking for people to to think about giving testimony to that, of what God's been doing. Uh, And if you've missed that email, look for it in your inbox, or uh, do reflect. It'd be really lovely to hear, hear from all sorts of different stories, um, both the positive and the negative, of what the last 10 years has been, been like. 
lots of questions like, what has God been teaching you? Where should we be going next? Uh, And I think these chapters, chapter 17 to 20, that we're going to look at over these next um, eight weeks or so, I think, um, they're helpful chapters that will help us to reflect. Uh, Chapters that Luke has written and put in the book of Acts to help us grow in confidence that Jesus is still working through his church, seeking and saving the lost. Uh, chapters where Luke revo- reviews, I think, Paul's ministry. Uh, it gives us, he tells us what Paul does in the f- these five cities, although we've missed one, they're back in chapter 16, as we go to Athens and Corinth and Ephesus, so three more cities to go in this second ris- missionary journey. Uh, but then we get this long review in chapter 20, the end of 19 and 20, of Paul's ministry in Ephesus as he speaks to the leaders at the church of Ephesus and tells them, uh, reminds them what he's been doing uh, and why he's been doing it. So it's help, this is going to be helpful for us as a church. We're going to review ourselves, if you like. Um, it's a church annual review, if you've ever had one of those at work. Uh, how are we doing uh, and where are we going? Uh, so for, we're going to just do a, sort of an overview of the chapters this week before we get into the detail next week. Some of it, I hope, is familiar, because we've looked at these verses before, uh, particularly these first 15 verses. Uh, And we're going to answer a few questions. Firstly, what's the task? What is it that we should be up to? Uh, What is it that, as a church, we should be doing uh, in the Rylands as we join Jesus in seeking and saving the lost? Well, I think it'll be helpful, as we answer that question, to think, well, where are we in the book of Acts? Uh, You might remember... The Acts is, um, if you want to think of it like this, it's, it's season two uh, of Luke's biography of Jesus and the church. Uh, if season one, if uh, volume one was the gospel of Luke, Acts is the second volume, it's part two. It's what happened after Jesus had been, had raised, been raised from the dead and ascended back into heaven. In his eyewitness biography, in his gospel account, he, gives, he says he gives his readers, he's written to give them confidence that Jesus is God's rescuing king for the nations. And in this second one, it's to give us confidence that Jesus is still working as God's rescuing king for the nations through his spirit-empowered witnesses. Jesus is continuing his work. He's ascended to heaven, that's true, but he's That's not bad news. He's ascended to heaven so he might pour out his spirit onto his people so that the nations might be reached with the good news about Jesus. The gospel really is for everyone. And particularly, that's been the question in chapter 15 that the church has had to wrestle with. Up to chapter 15, the majority of people becoming Christians were from a Jewish background in Jerusalem and Judea, uh, and then Samaria, which are not Jewish, obviously, but part of the Old Testament story. Uh, but now the Gentiles are becoming Christians, people who aren't, don't have a Jewish background. And the question the church had to answer in chapter 15 is, is that okay? Is God's grace really for non-Jewish people? And the resounding answer is absolutely it is. And so Paul is sent off in his second missionary journey. And he goes to Philippi and, and other places in chapter 16. But what Luke does as he tells us about this second missionary journey of Paul is really focus in on Paul's method. What is Paul doing? How will the good news about Jesus 
make it to the ends of the earth. And as we think about that, it's, well, it's got big implications for us because the gospel is still going to the ends of the earth, isn't it? That's still happening. We're part of the ends of the earth as far as Paul's concerned, but there are many people, uh, many nations, many uh, people groups who don't know about Jesus. They don't have access to even to the Bible to tell them about Jesus, which is why we support the mission associates that we support. But also there are many people in the Rylands who don't know about Jesus. There are 5,000 people that live around this building, within a mile of it, and many of them don't know the story about Jesus. Not clearly, not in a way that they're able to respond to it in the, as he really is. Your closest non-Christian friend, your neighbour, your colleague, your family member, how will they get to know Jesus? That's, how, will, how will he reach them? How is he going to seek and save them? And that's what we get um, in these chapters. And the first thing we see of Paul's task is, it's very, I mean, it's overwhelming as you read through, and if you've had a chance to read through, you'll know this, that Paul proclaims Jesus, discusses Jesus, debated Jesus, has conversations about Jesus, dialogues with Jesus, and preaches Jesus from the scriptures. Let me show that to you. Look down at chapter 17, verses 1 to 3. Let's just read those. When Paul and his companions had passed through um, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three days, three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Now look at verse 11. Now the Berean Jews were more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. As a result, many of them believed. So same ministry, slightly different response. The Bereans are better, apparently, than the Thessalonians. But they, they, Paul proclaimed, and they go to the scriptures, is Jesus the Christ? Look down at verse 17. So Paul reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Uh, look across at 18 verse 4. So you have to turn the page. 18 verse 4. Every Sabbath day, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Chapter 18 verse um, 5. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Verse 11. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Chapter 19, verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. How does he sum up his ministry? Flick over to chapter 20, verse 20. He says to the Ephesian elders, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Verse 26, 
Therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to you to proclaim the whole will of God, the whole counsel of God. Bible open, declaring, explaining, proving, dialoguing about how Jesus is God's rescuing king and that that requires a response. How do people meet Jesus? He comes to them clothed in the scriptures, is what we see in the book of Acts. As his spirit-empowered people give people the message of the Bible, I don't mean just reading verses out, but explaining, persuading, dialoguing, conversing with them about the who Jesus is, so they come to receive him as the king, as their Lord. Now, some might say, if you look at Acts chapter 17, just flick back to that, verse 16 uh, onwards, or verse 22 onwards, really, you, um, some people say, look, that's not what Paul did in Athens. When he, when he was faced with a, a load of um, Athenian philosophers who didn't know the scriptures, he did something very different. He gave a very different talk. Well, we're going to see next week that while he did give a different talk, and he was, I'm very passionate about these verses, uh, the content, really, is exactly the same as everything else he's been showing. There's, he's still reasoning from the scriptures. He's still giving a Bible talk, albeit in a slightly different a different way. Same scriptures being proclaimed, same Messiah being proclaimed, same response being uh, proclaimed that people need to repent and trust Jesus. See, Paul is doing what Jesus said would happen, he would do. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, verses 4 to 4 to 48. Jesus said to his disciples, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. It's what Jesus said would happen is what's happening. As he continues to seek and to save the lost, he does it through his spirit-empowered people, proclaiming, announcing, telling, speaking, gossiping the message about Jesus to those that are listening. See, Christianity is, is news <laughs> to be announced, that Jesus is God's promised rescuing king who came and died and rose again so that his enemies might become his friends. And we are a group of people who believe that, and who, like Paul, are called to keep living and teaching that to others. Uh, The church, as someone said, is um, a creature of the word, It's as the word is taught and believed and proclaimed and understood and trusted that churches form. So that's going to be our, it's got to be our central task. Now don't mishear me when I say that. I don't mean it's the only thing we do as followers of Jesus, that we're all called to 
just preach and not do anything else. And I think that's often because we think of like evangelism or speaking about Jesus or making Jesus known. We tend to think of it as um, like on a list of things to do. And you get a talk like this and you know, yeah, I need to put that back at the top of the list. And, you know, off we go again, feel guilty for a bit and we'll do a bit and then forget about it. No, that's, that's not the point. It's not priority number one of lots of things to do. It's central to everything we do. So whatever's on the list, we're to be making Jesus known. That's the, that's the end goal. That's the, the thing that we want to do is get people to, to meet Jesus from the scriptures. It can happen in all sorts of different ways, through all sorts of different means. But that's how he seeks and saves the lost, as, as he empowers his people to proclaim the message about him in the world. Showing people from the Bible that the God they were created to trust and know loves them so much that he sent his one and only son so they might be forgiven and welcomed back into relationship with him. That's what Paul gets up to. And if you look closely in these verses, it's also what everyone else is getting up to. In some way, they're either proclaiming or supporting the proclaiming of the word. So, poor old Jason, down in verse 6, look at that with me. What happens to Jason? Listen, verse 6, but when they did not find Paul and his companions, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into, into his house. They're defying, the, uh, defying Caesar's decree, saying, there is another king, one called Jesus. Now, the word welcome in verse 7 is the word received. Uh, and it's code for Luke that they became Christians. So Jason, who probably had a bigger house than everyone else, has received the message about Jesus, become a Christian, and has opened up his home to be a place where the, the message about Jesus can be proclaimed. Probably not doing it himself, but creating the means for it to happen. And he gets into trouble for it. Uh, look down at Berea, what we find is Timothy and Silas are left there to continue the ministry that um, Paul has begun. Uh, in Corinth, flick over the page to chapter 18, Paul meets and trains up this, this remarkable couple in the New Testament called, um, <laughs> sorry, my notes, it's spell-checked to prickle. It's not prickle, it's Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, and they're trained up by Paul and continue his ministry together. Uh, they take under their wing this guy called Apollos. He's clearly very gifted, but a bit eager with no content, and they help him get his content right. Uh, then not least, the Ephesian elders that Paul spends a few years with, training up and helping them to keep on teaching God's word to God's people and shepherding the flock, as Paul calls it, in their teaching ministry. You see, while we see Paul doing his itinerant ministry of preaching the word through these chapters, we see him equipping others to do the same, training up others, having others alongside him, having other people facilitate him. We'll meet Damaris in the end of chapter 17, who um, probably opened up her house and became a church uh, in Athens. The church grows as the scriptures are taught, announced, proclaimed. 
Churches are creatures of the word, and we're to be a people of the word, facilitating the preaching and proclaiming and the gossiping and the conversing about who Jesus is from the scriptures, either doing it ourselves or enabling others to do it. So the obvious question for us 10 years on is, is this what we're doing? Is this central, this word-proclaiming, spirit-empowered ministry, is that what we're about? Is that what you're about? As you think about your leading of your community group, is that what you're passionate, that make, you make sure that happens? That noses are in the Bible, that we're discussing what we're learning on a Sunday, that we're really thinking it out into our lives. As you plan junior church, is it you know early on a Sunday morning, quickly finding a task that you could do or something you really prepare for? Make sure you get right because you want the kids to know God's word. In our friendships with one another, is the Bible open when we meet up? Is it the centre of our conversations with each other? Is that what we're praying would flourish? Is that what we're giving time and resources to enabling to happen? You guys who have started secondary school, how exciting. How exciting for you. Same question. How can you help the word flourish in your school? Now, I know for some of you that means... It could be being part of the Christian Union, helping cross-teach as they do their work in your school and and enabling that to happen, bringing your friends, helping the word to flourish. It's a question that we can all sort of think about together. Uh, Maybe as a couple, you could talk about this over lunch together or with friends in your house or whoever it is. Like, how can we introduce our friends with the scriptures? How can we help them meet Jesus? What, what could we do to enable that to happen? There's lots of ways. You can engage, bring them to church. You could talk to Lorna and think, okay, I've got an event, the idea of how I might get my friends to engage with this. You could be part of a greenhouse course and do it yourself, have a, do a, give a talk. Loads of different ways. Just think about it. How, how can I help my friends meet Jesus? What could I do? either myself or get someone else to do it for me, and I'll I'll make it happen. I'll be like Jason. I'll open up my home, and I'll get someone to come in and give a a message, or I'll do a one-to-one Bible study with them. There's loads of resources out there. The word one-to-one that Kat introduced us to, really brilliant resource, just to open up the scriptures with a friend. That's our task, because that's how Jesus is seeking and saving the lost, through his spirit-empowered people, proclaiming the news about him. So that's our task. Well, what kind of response should we expect? In the early chapters of Acts, when you say what kind of response should we expect, the answer might be, well, we should expect thousands and thousands of people to become Christians. Because that's what remarkably happens. Peter gives one talk, and 3,000 people are added to the number then 4,000, and then a large number. And then we keep being told the word of God grows and spreads. But as you move through the book of Acts, and particularly in these chapters, what you see is not large numbers turning, but a, a really mixed response. And it's really helpful for us, particularly if we're feeling discouraged by a slower work. Certainly a work feels slow here in the Rylands, does it? 
But Luke doesn't want us to be discouraged. He wants, as we, as he unpacks Paul's ministry for us, he wants us to see what normal ministry, what a response to the normal ministry is like. Uh, chapter 16 and 17, you get these five cities, and we see all sorts of different responses. Uh, look down at chapter uh, 17 and verse 32. Uh, we get this summary of what happens in Athens, which I think is a good summary of all of the chapters, really. So when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demaris, and a number of others. Three responses. Mockery. Some come to a Christianity Explore course. Others believe and follow. See, the word ministry, Paul says, uh, Luke says, as he describes it, it won't be a passive ministry. If we're doing it well, there'll be a response to it. And we'll see all sorts of responses. See good responses, encouraging responses, and not so encouraging responses. Particularly in chapter 17, did you notice how Luke compares and contrasts Thessalonica with Berea? Just look back at chapter 17, 1 to 15. And we're told in, um, that the Bereans, in verse 11, are more noble than those. The Jewish believers in Berea are more noble than the Thessalonians because they listened to what Paul said and examined to see if it was true. They examined, studied, and came to the conclusion that, yeah, Jesus is the Christ, and we should trust him. It's just helpful to know that, isn't it? As an aside, that to become a follower of Jesus is not bin your brain. Uh, It's not believe what you're taught without asking any questions. No, it's right to think it out, to ask the questions. If you're, I hope that's how you engage with your friends. (laughs) Being willing to listen to the questions that they have and the objections they have. Taking time to pay attention to it. If you're a parent here this morning, are you encouraging your kids when they ask questions? Rather than shutting them down. Are you willing to make yourself vulnerable to them? So I I don't know, that's a really good question. Where do dinosaurs fit? It's a great question. I need to answer that for Lewis. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of the questions. Paul's not. He wants people to reason it out, to think it out. But not everyone likes the message about Jesus, do they? We certainly see that in these chapters. If you've had time to read them through, you'll have seen that. That as this message spreads and people start believing it... And certainly this is true in the, the first and second century. That the, the, the message is violently opposed. You see hints of it in Thessalonica as the, the religious leaders, verse 5, look down at that. They were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Similar things happen in, in other cities. And it's, the same is true today. In places like North Korea, in parts of the Middle East and North Africa, 
where Christianity is growing and spreading, as people hear the message about Jesus, you find those in power seeking to suppress it and crush it. Find totalitarian regimes are often afraid of people believing in a king who serves his enemies, who welcomes the outcast and the marginalised, who calls his followers to live in the same way. That's, that's really dangerous for a totalitarian regime, so they will oppose it to have people like that. See, being part of the church doesn't mean undermining governments. That's not my point there. In fact, we're told to submit to authorities over us. But becoming a Christian does change your allegiance. It changes their allegiance in Thessalonica as they turned away from their Jewish faith and turned towards the Messiah Jesus, or perhaps became more Jewish, you could argue, than the the actual Jews. And the result is that they're jealous and they hate Christianity. And poor old Jason... It's a difficult time. See, Jesus being confront, uh, sorry, Jesus being king confronts every view of the world. And often, those most hostile to the claims of Jesus are the religious. That will be where the opposition comes. When I spent time with UCCF, often on university campuses, uh, it was the religious leaders on the campuses that were most opposed to the Christians doing mission. Those with a particularly vested interest in the good news about Jesus being true, sorry, in it not being true, are those that oppose Christians. And as we go through these chapters, Luke will want us to see the implications for us following Jesus, for how we think about things that our own culture values and prizes highly that we're to turn away from and and show our allegiances to Jesus, not to our culture. See, that's what happens when God's word is preached and proclaimed. Some believe it, and some absolutely hate it. And some are interested, and we'll find out more and puzzle it over with you. But that's what happens. And so as we review ourselves and our church, what response are we giving to the word? Um, I love what Paul... Just flick over a few pages to Thessalonians uh, and chapter 1, where Paul gives his own review of what happened in Thessalonica. Chapter 1, uh, it's on page 1186. Here's Paul's own review. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe affliction with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia. Down in verse 9. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God 
and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. As Paul's review of Thessalonians, what happened here in this city in Acts 17, that this, this group of people listened to the message about Jesus and it utterly changed their lives. So they looked completely different to their culture. They turned away from the idols of their culture and trusted in Jesus. And so the message rang out from them. This, these people are living completely different lives to everyone around them. You see, the, the implication for us, if, if we're to be a church that's proclaiming and trusting the word, then we should be praying that God's word would be transforming us to this extent. If we really want to see the poor loved, the marginalized welcomed, then the prayer has got to be that this word... This gospel word would go deep into our lives such that it would bring this, this huge transformation where we don't live for ourselves anymore and for our own comfort but for the good of others and that, they might, that others might hear about Jesus. Now what if at the start of this academic year your prayer for yourself was that this year I would be transformed by God's word. That I'd be preoccupied with Jesus and the scriptures, that I would know him, delight in him. That I wouldn't settle for TV dinners but feast on Christ instead. See, Luke wants us to see that, yeah, people will reject it. Uh, it might have a hard time. But when the gospel takes hold, transformation comes. God, uh, idols are toppled. Christ is lifted up. It has profound impact. And you'll meet these people as we go through these, these chapters. People like Jason, people like Sosthenes, people like Crispus. These people who believed the message, and their lives were transformed by it. It even happens in a whole city in Ephesus. <laughs> the impact of the gospel is so great in that city that the local businesses get upset that they're not selling the idols that they used to sell. I mean, imagine, just imagine Netflix, Netflix putting out a press release saying, we've discovered in our, in our figures that in the Rylands area of Beeston in Nottingham in the UK, there are less subscribers and less people watching Netflix because they're reading their Bibles. What does God want us to be doing? Investing in his word? What response will it get? Radical transformation and some opposition. But there are some threats. There are threats. We're going to meet the threats as we go through these chapters. There's threats from the religious lot. There's threats from the authorities in Corinth, those in charge of the city in Corinth and Ephesus. But there's one threat that I want to end with that Paul talks about. And it's in, Ephesians, it's in Ephesus, and it's in Acts chapter 20. And the surprising threat, Paul's big warning in Acts chapter 20, is not about religious leaders. And it's not about authorities. Uh, the big warning is about the hearts of, his people, of the Lord's people. Look down at verse 28. 
keep watch over yourselves, he's speaking to the church leaders, and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Be on your guard. Where's the threat? It's in the church. See, we need to get God's word right at the heart of church life, and we need to be praying that we be transformed by it. Because every single one of us, every single one of us are a bad decision away from disaster. See, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11 that wolves will be in his church, but they'll look just like the sheep. They won't be scary looking. They won't have wolf tattooed over their forehead. No, they'll be, they'll look just like us. Paul says to the Ephesians, some of you. A very, very sobering moment, I'm sure, in that meeting. See, the biggest threat to our little church is my sin and your sin. So the question to review at this point, I think, is who, who here, who amongst your closest friends has access to your heart? As you hear God's word and as you're challenged by it, who's keeping you accountable for that? Who's asking you the difficult questions, the questions you don't want to be asked? Who are you telling your sins to? (laughs) Because, friends, we're a danger. We're a danger to one another and to this church. We need God's word to be transforming us. So we need each other to help each other to keep trusting and following Jesus. How can we open up the scriptures to the people around us, whether that's with each other or in this community or across the world? How can we enable that word to be active so that God can, so that Jesus can continue to seek and to save the lost?